Welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Happy Halloween and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. We've got a frightfully good one in store for you today. I'm sorry, it had to be done. There's murder, intrigue, ghosts and death. And also some wonderful readings. The first of which is from Ferdinand von Schirach's The Collini Case, a thrilling German courtroom drama. It's quite a grisly extract, so if you're sensitive to gore, I would pop your headphones or speakers on silent for those few minutes. Next, we go all spooky fairy tale with Philip Pullman, who will be talking about his new book, Grim Tales, in which he has chosen 50 favourite stories from the Brothers Grimm and retold them in his own unique voice. Following that, we have a Q&A with Tim Weaver, the master of psychological suspense. And finally, we have a reading from Christopher Coke's You Came Back, a haunting modern-day ghost story. But first, here's an extract from The Collini Case. If you're weak of stomach, tune out now. Later, they would all of them remember it. The floor waiter, the two elderly ladies in the lift, the married couple in the fourth-floor corridor, They said the man was gigantic, and they all mentioned the smell of sweat. Collini went up to the fourth floor. He checked the numbers, room 400, the Brandenburg suite. He knocked. Yes, the man in the doorway was 85 years old, but he looked much younger than Collini had expected. Sweat was running down the back of Collini's neck. Good evening. Collini from the Coeri della Sera. He spoke indistinctly, wondering whether the man was going to ask him for ID. Yes, glad to meet you. Come along in. We might as well do the interview in here. The man offered Kalini his hand. Kalini flinched. He didn't want to touch him. Not yet. I'm sweating, Kalini explained, and was angry with himself for saying so. It sounded odd. No one would naturally say a thing like that, he thought. Yes, very sultry today. It ought to rain soon, said the man amiably. Although he was wrong about the sultry atmosphere, these rooms were cool. You could hardly hear the air conditioning. They went into the sitting room of the suite, beige carpet, dark wood, large windows, all of it expensive and solid. Kalini could see the Brandenburg Gate from the window. It looked to him strangely close. Twenty minutes later, the man was dead. Four bullets had gone into the back of his head. One had swivelled inside the brain and emerged again, taking half his face with it. The beige carpet soaked up the blood, a dark outline slowly spreading. Kalini put the pistol on the table. He got down on the floor beside the man, stared at the age spots on the back of his hands. He turned the body over with the toe of his shoe. Suddenly he brought the heel of it down on the dead man's face, looked at him, and brought it down again. He couldn't stop, he kept grinding his heel into that face, while blood and brain matter spurted over his trouser leg, the carpet, the bedstead. Later, the forensic pathologist couldn't reconstruct the number of times Kalini's foot had trodden down as the bones of the dead man's cheeks, jaw, nose, and skull cracked under the force of it. Kalini didn't stop until the heel of his shoe came off. He sat down on the bed. Sweat was running down his face. It took his pulse some time to calm down. 
He waited until he was breathing regularly again, then stood up, crossed himself, left the room and took the lift down to the ground floor. He was limping. Because the heel was gone, the nails sticking out scraped over the marble paving. In the lobby, he told the young woman at the reception desk to call the police. She asked questions, gesticulating. All Kalini said was room 400. He's dead. Beside him, the electric panel in the lobby announced, 23rd of May, 2001, the Spree Hall, Association of German Engineering Industries. He sat down on one of the blue sofas in the lobby. The waiter asked if he could bring him anything. Kalini did not reply. He stared at the floor. His footprints could be traced back over the marble paving of the ground floor, in the lift, up to the suite. Kalini waited to be arrested. He had waited all his life, and he had held his peace all that time. Next we have something a little lighter, with Philip Pullman and his Grim Tales. Um, it shares its eminence as a collection of folk tales with only one other, and that's A Thousand and One Nights, in my view. Uh, the two of them are the most important and influential collections of folk tales ever made. Um, the Grimm's collection grew bigger as the years went by, but also the tales themselves changed. They became more elaborate, they became more prudish. Um, as the century went on, the rather racy tone of some of the, uh, some of the early tales uh, faded away slightly and was replaced by something more polite. But we still have the early versions and um, we can compare them now and it's very interesting to do so. They've, they've been an absolute treasure chest for scholars of uh, every kind of discipline. Uh, literature, folklore, cultural, political history, uh, theorists of every kind, Freudians, Jungians, Christians, Marxists, structuralists, post-structuralists, feminists, postmodernists, every kind of tendency has found a wonderful um, and very fertile ground for exploration in these 210 tales. And I've, I've read some of those studies and very interesting they are, but I, it, it would be wrong to say I haven't been influenced by them and that mine is a pure, clear telling because one never is pure and clear. Uh, but my interest in the, in the stories has always been how they worked as stories. Was this a good story? Was this a bad story? Could this story be improved? Was this, did this one fall into two parts and could they be joined together or was it impossible to do anything for it? What I set out to do in this book was to tell what I thought were the 50 best and most interesting of them. Uh, and I clearing out of the way anything that would pre prevent them from flowing freely. I didn't want to prevent, I didn't want to produce, as many people have done and done very well, I didn't want to produce versions set in the modern world or deeply personal interpretations with all my preoccupations and um, obsessions on view or poetic variations on the originals. I just wanted to produce a text that was as true to the Grimm's as I could make it, but that flowed as freely and clearly as water. I'm just going to read you one example now, uh, one of my favourite stories. And another thing, of course, that you can do in a book which tells 50 of 200 stories is, is you can pick out ones that people aren't very familiar with. We all know the great ones, the, uh, the Snow White um, story, Hansel and Gretel, Rumpelstiltskin and so on, and they have to be there because if you're looking for a collection of Grimm's tales. You want those tales, and they've got to be there. And rightly, they are there too, because they're classic stories, beautifully told in Grimm. But I also had a, a bit of room to tell stories that people weren't quite so familiar with, and I think this is one of them. It's called The Three Snake Leaves. 
Once there was a poor man who couldn't support his only son anymore. And when he realised this, the son said, Well, look, Father, it's no use my staying here. I'm just a burden to you and I, I'm going to leave home, see if I can make my fortune. So the father gave him his blessing and they parted. Well, the king of the country next door was a powerful ruler and he was pretty well always making war. The young man saw an opportunity here and he enlisted in the army and soon found himself at the front where a great battle was being fought. Swords flashed, bullets flew like hail, the danger was hideous and his comrades were falling dead all around. When the general himself fell dead, the last of the troops were going to run away but the young man took his place and shouted out, We won't be defeated! God save the king and follow me! The men followed him as he led the charge and soon had the enemy, the, the enemy on the run. They won the battle. When the king heard of the young man's part in the victory, he gave him honours and treasure and knighthoods and goodness knows what, made him the first lord in the kingdom. Now the king had a daughter. This is a fairy tale. The king had a daughter who was very beautiful, but she had one strange obsession. She'd sworn an oath not to marry any man unless he promised to let himself be buried alive in the grave with her. She died first. After all, she said, after all, if he really loves me, why would he want to go on living? And she said that, of course, she'd do the same and be buried with him if he was the first to die. Well, this um, grim condition put off many young men who'd otherwise have begged to marry her because she was very beautiful. But the soldier was so struck by her loveliness that nothing would discourage him. So he asked the king for her hand. Do you know what you've got to promise? said the king. If she dies before me, I must go to the grave with her, said the soldier. But I love her so much, I'm willing to risk that. Well, since it looked unlikely that any other young man would take this on, and he wouldn't actually find a husband for the princess, the king said, OK, yes, you can marry him. He gave his consent. And the wedding was celebrated with great splendour. For a while, they were very happy living together. But one day, the princess fell ill. Doctors were summoned from all over the kingdom. They came from far and wide. But not one of them could help her, and presently she died. And then the young soldier remembered the promise he'd had to make. There was no way of getting out of it. He didn't want to break the promise. He loved his wife. He wanted to do what she wanted him to do, but it was going to be difficult. The king was going to put sentries at the grave itself and all around the cemetery in case he tried to escape. When the day came for the princess to be buried, they carried her body to the royal vault, made sure the young man was in there, and the king personally locked the door. They'd put some, some provisions in there for him. Didn't want him to starve to death, not, not at once. On a table they had some candles, four loaves of bread, four bottles of wine. The soldiers sat there beside the queen's body, beside the princess's body, day after day, taking only a mouthful of bread and a sip of wine, making them last as long as possible. When he'd taken the last sip but one, and eaten the last mouthful but one, and when the last candle was down to its last inch, he knew that his time had nearly come. But as he sat there, in the flickering light of that little candle, he saw a movement out of the corner of his eye. And he looked down on the floor, and there was a snake crawling out of the, a little hole he hadn't seen before in the corner of the vault. It was crawling towards the slab, marble slab, on which the princess's body lay. And the soldier, thinking that it was going to eat the princess, or bite her or something, took out his sword and said, While I live, you're not going to touch her. Cut the snake into pieces. Three blows. Shortly afterwards, a second snake came out of, the, out of the hole, came to the body of the first snake, looked at it very carefully, went back through the hole, and then came back carrying three leaves in its mouth, three green leaves. 
It carefully moved the first snake's body so that the wound was next to the wound and the other wound was next to that one. In a moment, then it laid a leaf on each of the wounds, each of the three wounds, and in a moment the snake began to move. The wounds closed up and the snake was whole again. The two snakes hurried away together. But they left the leaves lying still on the floor where they'd left them. And the young man thought that if they'd managed to do that to the snake to bring it back to life, well, you never know, it might do the same for a human being. So he picked up the leaves and laid them on the dead princess's face, two on her eyes and one on her mouth. And as soon as he did this, her heart began to beat, blood began to move around her body, cheeks became pink, her eyelids fluttered, she took a breath and opened her eyes. God in heaven, she said, where am I? What's happened? You're with me, my dear wife, said the soldier, told her all that had happened. He gave her the very last mouthful of bread and the last sip of wine, and then they banged on the door and shouted so loud that the sentries outside heard them and went running to the king. The king came hurrying to the graveyard, opened the door, and the princess tumbled into his arms. He shook the young man's hand and everyone rejoiced at the miracle that had brought her back to life. As for the three snake leaves, the soldier was a careful man and he told no one about how the princess had been revived. But he had an honest and reliable servant. He gave this servant the three snake leaves to look after. Take good care of them, he said. Make sure you take them wherever we go. You never know when we might need them again. Now after she was brought to life, a change came over the princess. All the love she had for her husband seemed to just seemed to drain away out of her heart. She still pretended to love him, and when he suggested making a voyage to visit his old father, she agreed at once. What a pleasure it'll be to meet the noble father of my dearest husband, she said. Once at sea, she forgot the great devotion the young man had shown her because she felt a, a lust growing in her for the captain of the ship. His strong arms, blue eyes, don't know what it was, something about her, something about him. Nothing would satisfy her but to sleep with him, and soon they were lovers. One night in his arms she whispered, Oh, if only my husband were dead, what a marriage we two would make. That's easily arranged, said the captain. He took a length of cord and with the princess at his side crept into the cabin where the young man was sleeping. The princess held one end of the cord and the captain wound the other around her husband's neck. And they pulled so hard that, struggle as he might, he couldn't fight them off and soon they'd strangled him. Princess took her dead husband by the head, the captain took him by the feet, and they threw him over the rail. Let's go home now, said the princess. I'll tell my father that he died at sea, and I'll sing your praises, and he'll let us be married, and you can inherit the kingdom. But the faithful servant had seen everything they'd done, and as soon as their backs were turned, he untied a boat from the ship and rowed back in search of his master's body. He soon found it, pulled him into the, pulled him into the boat, untied the cord from his neck, and laid the three snake leaves on his eyes and mouth. Just as happened before, it came to life again. Two of them rowed with all their might. Day and night they rowed, stopping for nothing, and their boat flew over the waves so fast they reached the shore a day before the ship. The king was amazed to see them. What's happened, he said. Where's my daughter? They told him everything, and he was shocked to hear his daughter's treachery. I can't believe she'd do such a terrible thing, he said. But the truth will soon come to light. And so it did. Very soon the ship arrived at the port, and the king made the young man and his servant wait in a hidden room where they, where they could listen to everything that was said. Princess, dressed all in black, came sobbing to her father. Why have you come back alone, he said. Where's your husband? Why are you wearing mourning? Oh, father dear, she said, 
I'm inconsolable. My husband took ill with a yellow fever and died. The captain and I had to bury him at sea. If the captain hadn't helped me, I don't know what I would have done. But he's such a good man. He looked after my dear husband when the fever was at its height. No matter what the danger, he can tell you all about it. Oh, your husband's dead, is he? said the king. Let's see if I can bring him back to life. And he opened the door and invited the other two to come out. When the princess saw the young man, she fell to the ground as if she'd been struck by lightning. She tried to say that her husband must have been hallucinating in his fever. He must have fallen into a coma so deep they mistook it for death. But the servant produced the cord. And in the face of that evidence, she had to admit her guilt. Yes, we did it, she sobbed. But please, Father, so show some mercy. Don't speak to me of mercy, said the king. Your husband was ready to die in the grave with you, and he gave you back your life, but you killed him in his sleep. You'll get the punishment you deserve. And she and the captain were put on board a ship with holes drilled in the hull and sent out over the stormy sea. Soon they sank with the ship and were never seen again. Now, that's a story that many people, I think, probably don't know. And it's a different story in tone from some of the, um, some of the other tales in the book. In fact, they're very varied. And uh, they're not really all what we call fairy tales. Fairies as such, goblins or pixies or elves or things like that, only appear in very few of the stories, two or three at my count. Uh, there's magic, there's supernatural things. These three snake leaves aren't altogether likely. <laughs> but um, they work in the context of the story, don't they? But this is a very romantic story. It's a very sort of... It reminds me, actually, quite strongly, of some of the stories in Italo Calvino's wonderful collection of Italian folk tales. Um, there was a lot of uh, going to and fro with stories, obviously. Um, and I had huge fun in um, telling uh, the 50 stories I chose. Uh, it occurred to me, uh, as I was doing some of them, uh, that another favourite of mine is a story called The Mouse, the Bird and the Sausage. They set up house together and it all ends badly. <laughs> um, but I haven't got time to tell you that today. Um, there, I think there'll be no end of telling these stories no end of translating them and making new versions and adaptations of them but we may do our best with these tales and find that it's still not enough I suspect that the finest of these stories have the quality that the great pianist Arthur Schnabel attributed to the sonatas of Mozart they're too easy for children and too difficult for adults um, but the stories I've tried to tell to the best of my ability are I think the 50 or so best in the collection. They're not, all, uh, they're not all the same sort of story. They're not all as good as each other in the great 211, 212 collection. But I think I got the best of them here. And I had enormous fun telling them. And I hope that the readers uh, enjoy reading them. Thank you very much. A great retelling of a classic scare. Next up, we've got a Q&A with Tim Weaver, psychological thriller and suspense extraordinaire. What first inspired you to begin writing crime novels? What first inspired me was when I was growing up, my mum used to leave all sorts of uh, thrillers hanging around in all sorts of coves and holes at home, and I used to pick them up and I used to just start reading them in my teens. And, and so thrillers have always been uh, very close to my heart, always been something that I've loved. And, uh, and yeah, I, mean, I was pretty clear from pretty early on that if I was going to write, it was going to be a thriller. Which authors have you read that you admire the most? 
I'm a big fan of American crime fiction. I've always grown up reading American crime fiction, probably much more than, than, than British crime fiction, even though my books are actually set in the UK. Um, authors I love uh, are, are many and varied, but I, I guess the biggest influence on me and, and, and the author I, I love the most is probably Michael Connolly. How do you come up with your plot ideas? I think how do you come up with your ideas is probably the question you get asked the most as an author, and I think that um, I'm not sure there's any any really satisfying answer to that. Uh, I, I, from my point of view, there's there's infinite ideas, there's loads of ideas, and lots of ideas come to me uh, at, at lots of different times. In fact, they're coming to me all the time, which is why I carry a notebook around with me. But it's not so much the ideas; it's how you knit those ideas together into a cohesive whole. And I think that's uh, that's the real challenge as a writer: not perhaps coming up with the original idea, but how to push that idea forward and see it through to its conclusion. Why did you decide to base your series on a missing persons investigator rather than following a more traditional police procedural? Growing up, I'd read a lot of uh, traditional pr police procedural thrillers, and and I admire them completely and I, I want to do something that was kind of in the same uh, uh, field and had the, I had a kind of familiar feel but at the same time was something that just had, gave it a little bit of a twist and missing person seemed quite interesting to me it was it was an area that's very emotive it's uh, you know people go missing all the time and uh, and some of these people never come home again and it seems amazing that in this this day of you know uh, 24 hour news channels and CCTV on every camp uh, every street corner that that we the, you know, these people can just vanish into thin air. It just seems incredible. So, so that really set my interests going. And when I looked further into it, I was just astonished by the amount of people that actually did go missing every year in the UK alone, you know. So it seemed like a good starting point for a, for a kind of series. And also I thought it, it ran very nicely in parallel with David Raker as a character who is my series character and, and, and how he felt about his wife and how he was grieving about his wife and how he would be able to identify with these people when they came to see him. And you mentioned David Raker there. Is he based on a real-life person? What do you think makes him different from other investigators? No, he's not based on anyone particularly. Um, I think, you know, almost inevitably parts of yourself as a writer go into your character. I think that's anyone who says that that's not the case is probably telling a, a bit of a porky because you do end up, you know, getting bits of, bits of you into the character. But I think... think one of the, one of the reasons that, that I, I I wanted to do a missing persons investigator and, and and how kind of David Raker grew out of that was was this need I felt for for a little bit of um, a character with a bit of an emotional core. You know, I, I mentioned earlier I really really uh, loved American crime fiction and grew up re reading American crime fiction. And one of the reasons I really connected with American crime fiction was I felt that. Um, some of it, not all of it, but some of it had a real emotional heart that perhaps you don't get so much in British uh, crime fiction. And uh, I think I really, really connected with those characters. And I definitely wanted to bring that across to, to Raker and give him a, like a real emotional centre as well as being a, a, a great detective and a, and, a, and a great hero for the books. So talking about those emotional narratives, is there going to be a long term future for David and Liz? I get, you know, I get asked about David and, and Liz surprisingly often, and uh, it really, it's it's quite um, quite nice that because you know Liz really was was quite a last minute addition to to Chasing the Dead, my my, my first book, and uh, and I never expected her to resonate, you know, and that relationship to resonate quite as quite as well as it has. Uh, you know, I don't want to spoil too much about what goes on in Vanish, so I won't won't talk about it too much. But I think you know their relationship is certainly. Uh, one of several relationships in the books that 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 span you know all three all, all three of the books, and I think it's uh, it's probably the one that that people want to see 
uh, turn out nicely. Whether it will or not, I guess we'll just have to find out when we read the book. And in your second novel, you introduced Healy as Raker's sidekick. What were your reasons for this, and what is it that makes their relationship so special? I love writing Healy. I think uh, Healy's the reason I introduced Healy really was because in Chasing the Dead, David was was very much the kind of lone wolf. He was um, he was having to face some pretty um, pretty dark characters in that first book who 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 took him to some pretty dark places. And and I, and, I, and when I came to write the Dead Tracks, my second book, I was I was determined that I didn't want to repeat. Uh, what I'd done in the first book, I wanted to do something a little bit different, and and it seemed like a good, uh, a good stage to kind of bring someone else into the fold. And Healy was like the sort of, in many ways, the polar opposite of of Raker, but at the same time, they're 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 very very close a lot of the time in the way they think and the way they've both lost people and 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 the way in which they grieve uh, quite quite similarly. So they're an, it's an interesting dynamic. It's really fun to write because Healy's like the the release valve. You know, he just goes off and he's just a, a hothead. Whereas Raker's like the, the the other side of the coin. He's he's very similar to to Healy, but much better at kind of keeping his his emotions in check. And it pr- provides a really interesting dynamic when they're taking on these these cases together. Your thrillers seem very filmic. Are you inspired by certain movies or TV series? And if so, which ones? Again, that's, that comes up quite a lot. You know, people say your, your, your stuff is very filmic, and, and, and that pleases me because it means that people can immediately uh, visualise these books, these characters, where it's going and, and where it's set. So that, that's good. And yes, definitely, I mean, television and film have played a big part in my, uh, in my upbringing. I'm a massive film fan. Again, with TV series, uh, I, I've grown up watching a lot of American TV series, especially latterly, where the, you know, their TV output is so exceedingly strong and uh, yeah I mean you know great there's so much great writing in American TV and so much great visualization that I think it's easy to be inspired by that and you know R- Raker himself is is a, is a bit of an 80s action movie fan uh, so uh, and, and that really is just born out of the fact that I'm a bit of an 80s action movie fan so uh, so he had to be really. So your books have so far been predominantly set in London would you ever consider a different setting? Yeah, definitely. I'd, I I would consider a different setting. I mean, London really came out of the fact that uh, that I wanted a, a my my thrillers were based in the UK, and I wanted a city that that would would give uh, my characters an appropriate level of danger. And uh, so so London really was not born out of the fact that I had any particular affinity with the city, although I have nothing against London, uh, but more that it just provided a really good uh, canvas to uh, you know to paint all these characters and the situations they get into. But would I take it outside of London? Absolutely I would, and in fact that's exactly what I'm going to do in book four. So, you've mentioned book four. What can we expect? So book four is about a family that uh, disappear from, completely vanish into thin air, disappear from their home. Uh, and what I mean by that is uh, the sister of the wife of the family turns up at their house, the front door is open, she walks in, the food's still cooking on the stove, the TV's still playing, the kids' toys are all over the floor, the dog's still wandering around the house, but the family members aren't anywhere near there. In fact, they've completely gone. And the mystery comes out of the fact that it, it literally looks like they've vanished into thin air. They've left, they've left the house for some reason and never come back. Finally, we have a haunting extract from Christopher Cook's You Came Back. A woman's voice said his name. Then, Mr. Fife? Mark turned, startled, and saw her five feet away, the woman who'd stared at him through the coffee shop window. Here in front of him she was younger than he'd thought, younger than he was, maybe. This was the same round, tan face, the same narrow brown eyes, 
the same dark halo of curls. She wore the same black coat. Only the colour of her scarf had changed from silver to cerulean. She still, however, looked frightened of him. Her eyes darted across his face. Her hands worked and twisted. He wondered if she wasn't just a random crazy after all, about to harangue him about the evils of the Democrats, or to ask him over and over what time it was. The crazies liked bookstores. He'd noticed that when he was crazy and spending a lot of time in bookstores himself. I'm Mark Fife, he said. The woman drew back. Fearfully, Mark thought. I'm Connie Pelham. I called you? Her voice... It was indeed the same voice that had left him the odd phone message. It was high-pitched, quavery. It sounded, he thought, like her hair, curly, too large, out of control. She offered her hand, awkwardly, and he nearly fumbled his coffee trying to shake it. He didn't know what else to say, so he asked, Connie, have we met? Connie Pelham glanced out of the bookstore window toward the parking lot at the cold rain that had fallen steadily all evening, refracting each headlight in such a way that the window seemed broken into jagged shards. No, she said. I'm... No, we haven't. Not really. I'm... I'm doing some amateur detective work, I guess, but I'm not very good at it. She took a deep breath as though summoning Will. Can I buy you a cup of coffee, Mark? Detective work? What's this about? Do I owe someone money? No, it's not like that. I don't work for anyone, she smiled. I'm just me. And who was that, exactly? A woman frightened of him before, frightened of him now. Any curiosity he felt was undone by deep misgiving. Connie glanced at the window again. I'm sorry, she said, when she saw him staring. My... My ex-husband is due soon. He's dropping off my son. He remembered the child's voice speaking behind hers on the phone message. This strange woman had a child, and he did not. Miss Pelham, what's this about? She nodded, as though listening to a voice inside her. I'll just say it. Mr. Fife, I live at 156 Locust in Victorian Village. He started. Connie had just given him the address of his house, his and Chloe's old house, from the old life. A place where they'd lived with Brendan, where Brendan had died. She said, My, my ex and I bought it nine months ago from Margie Kinnick. I, your name was on the papers. I found your picture online on your website. I've been thinking about whether or not to call you. Then I thought, no, I ought to tell you in person. I saw you at the coffee shop when I went to find your address, but I saw you in the window, you remember? And I got nervous, and I thought, I can't do this. I, I should leave this poor man alone. Her voice hitched as though she might cry. His misgivings curdled into alarm, and he scanned the store, hoping to see Allison returning for him. But then I thought, I saw you walk in through the door, and I thought, that's him. And then I thought... Maybe it's meant to be, you know? Maybe I'm supposed to talk to you. Connie smiled then, suddenly weirdly hopeful. Do you think things are supposed to happen? She asked. Like in fate? Mark heard this question more frequently than he could bear, 
from friends and strangers alike, as though it might comfort him. They asked the man whose mother had withered to a moaning skeleton before dying whether he believed God had a plan. They asked the man whose son had broken his neck falling down the stairs whether or not he believed things happened for a reason. They asked a man whose wife had abandoned him for her grief what he thought about fate. No, he said tightly, I don't. Connie frowned. Well, I do, and seeing you here is... I guess it's no stranger than anything else that's happened. He heard his father's voice. You guess? Mark could guess, too. Connie could only want to talk about one thing, couldn't she? Weeks after Brendan's accident, he and Chloe had put their house on the market. They couldn't bear being in it any more, surrounded first by their son's toys, his strewn clothes, and then by the absence of them. They couldn't bear the walk every day up and down the narrow stairs, their own echoing voices. But no one would make them an offer. Turned out there was a law. For three years you had to report to buyers if someone had died in the house. Mark and Chloe had resigned themselves to a year, but three... Three seemed impossibly cruel. Then, after six months of silence, their realtor, Margie Kinnick, dear Margie, who'd been so friendly with them when they bought the place, who for years had stopped by to visit whenever she was on their street, had offered to buy the house from them. She was in the market for a place in the village, she said. She'd always loved their particular house. Her heart broke for them, she said. Why not make a deal that would help everyone? They'd sold the place to her for less than its value with relief. Mark hadn't spoken with Margie in ages. He'd simply assumed she still lived at the old place. Just last year, he'd gotten a Christmas card from her with 156 Locust as the return address. So Margie had sold the house to Connie Pelham. And Mark guessed she hadn't said a word to Connie about its past. Someone in the neighbourhood must have tipped Connie off, told her the history of her expensive new house, the tragedy that had occurred there. And now this woman who believed in fate was playing amateur detective, seeking him out. Mr. Fife, she said, can we sit down? He wanted to run from her. Sure, he said, his voice soft, conciliatory, his angry client voice. Sure, Connie. She led him to the cafe at the front of the store and asked him again if he wanted a drink, then looked so sad and dismayed when he held up his coffee cup that he almost ordered another just to keep her from crying. She left him to stand in line, casting nervous glances both at him and out the front windows. When she was in line, he took out his phone and texted Alison, Come get me, urgent. A middle-aged man with a ponytail was setting up an acoustic guitar amplifier in the corner of the cafe. The music would provide a good excuse to break away, even if Alison didn't come. Connie returned with a mug of tea and smiled, I wish I could have coffee, but it's too acid. Miss Pelham, he said, look, I, I know, I'm a crazy woman and I should just go away, I know, but I have to ask you something, something really important. She placed her hands around her mug and looked down into the steam, as though it contained a sign, God's plan just visible in the depths. Mr. Fife, did you have a son, a little boy? So he had been right. I did, his voice measured. My ex-wife and I lost our son in 2001. His name was Brendan. Connie lifted a hand to her mouth. Oh, God! 
Miss Pelham, Mark said, you have to understand, I really don't like to talk about this. She closed her eyes. And it happened there, in my house? Her house. The same old voice that had spoken to him during his long years of grief offered up its familiar whisper. Unfair, unfair. Yes, he said. It happened at the house. She was crying now, tears rolling out from the corners of her eyes. Where? The stairs, he said. He fell down the top flight onto the landing. She was shaking her head. Look, he said, I had no idea Margie would, would choose not to disclose something like that. He added quickly, it's not the house's fault. Connie dabbed at her eyes with a napkin. It's a good house. And I sank... My husband and I put a lot of money into it. It's a good school system. I mean, we wanted that for our son. Yeah, Mark said. So did we. Didn't you know about libraries? Couldn't she have looked up the article in the dispatch? Miss Pelham, he said, I'm sorry, but I really don't like talking about this, OK? You have to understand... Connie plunged forward as though he hadn't spoken. My son, Jacob, he's almost nine... Two weeks ago I got a call from Parkhurst Elementary. From Mrs. Dane? Mark didn't know her. Brendan hadn't lived to be nine, to have Mrs. Dane as a teacher. But he nodded helplessly. Jacob kept falling asleep in class, and he told her he was too scared to sleep. So I asked him about this, and Jacob... He tried to lie and tell me he was sleeping fine, but I kept pushing him and pushing him, and finally he told me the same thing, that he was too afraid to go to sleep... So I asked him, why was he afraid? Don't say it, Mark thought. And Jacob said, because of the ghost. He stood too quickly. His chair clattered backwards. The ghost of the little boy who used to live here. Very spooky. On a slightly less scary note, we have a competition running at the moment that we think will appeal to you audio fans. To celebrate the launch of the enhanced audiobook edition of Ben Masters' Naughties, read by Joe Thomas of The Inbetweeners and Fresh Meat fame, we're asking you to send us in your sounds of university. What does university sound like to you? Clinking glasses, fruit machines and deafening dance music? Whistles, shouting and changing room banter? Or perhaps it's lectures, chats and seminars? You can simply record on your phone using the memo function and email them to podcast at uk.penguingroup.com with your name and email address. Or you can add them to SoundCloud Dropbox at soundcloud.com slash penguin hyphen books slash Dropbox. Entries will be judged by a sound designer from Pinewood Studios and the winner will receive a pair of Sennheiser headphones. The competition is running until the 9th of November, so you better get in there. More details can be found at www.penguin.co.uk forward slash sounds of uni. And that's it from the Penguin podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and that we didn't scare you too much. If you have any comments or suggestions about the podcast, we'd really like to hear them. You can email us at podcast at uk.penguingroup.com or if you'd rather tweet us, we're at Penguin Podcast.